Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And this is going to be a fun episode. Now, I am not much of a car guy, so I really don't do that many episodes about cars, even though cars are clearly tech. You know, I've done a few about car companies, and I've done a few about specific technologies that are car-related, and a couple that are focused on specific cars, including one that we'll mention in this list. Uh, And I've done some on autonomous cars as well, but I thought it might be fun to do a roundup of some cars that have a reputation, you know, a bad reputation. So this episode is dedicated to cars that frequently pop up on the worst cars of all time lists. Uh, Some of these cars are thought of as the worst because of their reliability, or rather the lack of reliability. Some because the company that made them famously backed the wrong horseless carriage and subsequently went out of business. And I should add, this is just a sousson, a a sampling, if you will, an amuse-bouche of the worst cars of all time. And they're not necessarily the worst worst because... There are tons of different lists, right? I didn't select these cars myself. What I did was I went through lists like Goliath.com's The 25 Worst Cars of All Time, uh, AutoWise's 10 Worst Cars Ever Made, The Drive's article, The 10 Worst Cars of All Time, Time Time.com's article, The 50 Worst Cars of All Time, and an Edmunds list called 50 Worst Cars of All Time. So I used all these lists to help curate a small selection of vehicles that just weren't good for one reason or another. And I am not ranking these either. These are in no particular order, because the whole concept of worst is at least partly subjective. In fact, there are some cars that are on this list that other people who wrote the other list say, that that car gets a bad rap. It's really not that bad. So... There's no <laughs> there's no metric I can hold up that says, okay, definitively, this car is the worst one. And also, you know, where they put cars on, on their rankings changes a lot. Some lists have the Ford Pinto taking the top or, or bottom honors, if you want to look at it that way. And others will put it somewhere in the middle. So we'll actually start with the Ford Pinto, because it does pop up on a lot of lists. Just know that These bad cars appear in in no particular order, but we will begin with the Ford Pinto. This car is one I remember hearing jokes about when I was a kid, because Ford made these cars between 1970 and 1980, and I was also made between 1970 and 1980. Uh, The Pinto was meant to fill a niche in the North American market. It was the first subcompact car that Ford produced in North America. So for those not familiar with American car classifications, it behooves us to go through what those are really quickly so we just understand what we're talking about. So on the smallest end in America, you've got what are called mini compact cars, M-I-N-I compact cars. That includes stuff like the Chevrolet Spark or the Fiat 500. Those are roughly equivalent to what would be called A-segment mini cars in Europe. Now, if you go slightly larger than that, you have subcompact cars. That includes the Pinto or the Ford Fiesta. Then you go up another 
level, and you are now at compact cars. This would include cars like the Honda Civic or the Toyota Corolla. Then, when you go a little bigger, you get to mid-size cars. That includes stuff like the Toyota Camry and the Volkswagen Passat. And finally, you have large cars, like the Chevrolet Impala or the Cadillac CT5. So, it's really in size that we're talking about. Uh, and there are other terms that can be pop, you know, can be used in addition to these or in replacement of these. Like you might hear mid-size luxury, like a mid-size luxury sedan or a full-size luxury car, but you get the idea. Like these are the classifications that came out of the United States EPA, which is the Environmental Protection Agency, and it defines these specific classes of cars. So, you know, a car fits these based upon specs that the EPA drew up. Uh, and typically, the EPA uses the interior volume of a car to determine its classification. So you could, theoretically, have a really big car that has very small interior volume, and uh, arguably you could say it's not a large car, <laughs> even though the exterior would be quite large. But that's how EPA defines size for vehicles. Anyway, car companies... Oh, and I, by the way, that applies to cars. I'm not talking in that sense about things like SUVs and trucks. That's that's slightly different, but I had to, you know, draw the line so I could actually talk about the bad cars. So anyway, car companies would market subcompact cars as being more economical in their fuel consumption. Because you got to remember, this is after the 70s, where we had some oil crises that drove up cost of, of gasoline. Uh, there were gas shortages around the United States in the 70s. So the cars of the past, which were real gas guzzlers, you know, we're talking about some cars that would get less than 10 miles to the gallon. That was looked at as being a seriously bad and wasteful thing by the time you get to the late 70s and the early 80s. So there was this move toward economy, having cars that are less, uh, you know, of a gas guzzler. So it wasn't always the case that subcompact cars actually were that economical, but that's how they were marketed. Uh, the American companies were rushing into the design of subcompact cars because foreign car companies were gaining ground in North America, and the American companies suddenly found themselves facing serious competition from overseas. So for decades, the American car companies were sitting pretty in the United States. You know, we had foreign cars being imported into the country, but they weren't on a very large scale. It was only when you started seeing more German and Japanese cars coming in that the American car companies started to get a little nervous. So Ford cut the development time for the Pinto nearly in half compared to their normal process. And this was in an effort to stave off the growing threat of foreign cars and to establish an American subcompact vehicle. So when the Pinto debuted, you saw this two-door car and it had an enclosed trunk, uh, but a hatchback version of the Pinto followed shortly thereafter. And, you know, originally there wasn't that much criticism about the Pinto. Uh, some people complained about the brakes a little bit. Some people complained about the suspension. But what would really seal the deal for the Pinto would be its fuel tank. So Ford had designed the Pinto to have a rear-mounted fuel tank, and it sat nestled between the car's rear axle, which is where the rear tires attach, and the rear bumper. So sandwiched between these two components in the car. 
And um, at the time, the U.S. government had really focused on front-end collisions when it came to forming safety regulations, because the the seven, late 70s was also when the United States was starting to say, you know, we probably need to have some regulations in place to protect drivers on the road, that car companies have to meet these specifications if their cars are going to be sold in our country. So that had mostly focused on the front-end collision side of things at this point in history. And therefore, they didn't really take a look at the back end and what might happen with a rear collision. And the fuel tank location meant that if someone driving a Pinto were to get rear-ended by another car, there was a very real possibility that the fuel tank would be damaged, potentially ruptured. That, in turn, presented a serious fire hazard. The Pinto didn't have any significant crumple zone in the back of it, so if you collide at, at a, a good clock of speed, you know, we're talking about more than 10 miles per hour, certainly if it was more than 30 miles per hour, you're looking at a real potential to have a ruptured fuel tank. And there were cases of collisions in which people were, you know, badly injured or even died from burns. And it's undeniably horrible. Now, I should also add that the reputation of the Pinto was also due to a few sensational articles that may have inflated numbers to make it seem like the Pinto was even worse than what it really was. Not that it wasn't bad. I don't think you could really argue that it was you know, good, but rather that the reputation the Pinto received was worse than what it was merited. Uh, and there's also this story about a famous cost-benefit analysis memo. And depending upon whom you ask, that cost-benefit analysis memo either showed that Ford had callously concluded that if they fixed the problem, it would be more expensive than just paying off the lawsuits that would come up. So instead, they just said, we'll just deal with the lawsuits. That's one telling of that memo. Uh, or it was more like it was saying the likelihood of a tragic accident was no greater than for the average vehicle, of especially of that size. Still, this was bad enough for the Pinto to show up on a lot of these worst car lists, and Ford was pressured to recall one and a half million Pintos and Mercury Bobcats, which were essentially the same car, in 1978. Okay, let's switch gears so to speak, and talk about a different car. Uh, this one's called the Trabant, or sometimes the Trabi. Uh, this one came out of what was, at the time, East Germany. And quick history lesson for all you youngins out there. Once upon a time, after World War II, Germany was split into two nations. You had East Germany and West Germany. East Germany was a communist country, essentially an extension of the then Soviet Union. So East Germany began producing the Trabant back in the late 1950s, and while there would be a few models produced over the decades of production, the actual design of the car remained almost identical. So in other words, like if you were to look at a, a Trabant that was made in the late 50s and, a, and one that was made in the early 80s, you probably wouldn't be able to tell that there were very many differences. They were essentially the same. In some ways, that makes things easy because... Replacement parts are going to be plentiful. I mean, presumably they will be compatible across multiple models, but it also shows, let's say, a lack of uh, evolution and innovation. It was a tiny two-door car, and the Trabant's body was made from a material called duroplast. And this is a fiber-reinforced plastic, so kind of like fiberglass, 
typically the fibers in Duroplast were cotton or sometimes wool. So these were cars that had, you know, sometimes cotton reinforced plastic bodies. One issue with this was that the process of shaping and curing the plastic called thermosetting is an irreversible process. So you start off with a polymer that's in a, a liquid format and you can pour this liquid into say a mold. Then you can subject that mold to, you know, heat and high pressure and the liquid polymer cures and it hardens into shape. But you cannot do the same process in reverse. Once it's hardened into shape, it's locked there. So you can't just, you know, heat it up and melt it back down into a reusable format. So that make, makes uh, the Trabant a bit of a pain to deal with when they reach the end of their useful life cycle, which for some of these vehicles appeared to be shortly after they rolled off the assembly line. Eventually, people figured out how to shred the car bodies and use that material as aggregate for concrete production. And uh, there's some stories that say that pigs found duroplast delicious. Uh, those may be urban legends, and I would probably treat it as, you know, being such and not taking that as gospel. But there are so many articles out there that just casually present that as fact. It's just when you do some digging, you find out there aren't any, like, reliable reports on it. Anyway, the car ran on a mixture of oil and gas. So you sort of refuel the Trabant. You would actually have to open up the hood of the car. There was no like, you know, gas tank that you could access outside the car. You had to open the hood. So expose the engine. And then it had a little fuel tank at the uh, top of the, the engine block. So you would open that up and you would pour in a mixture of oil and gas into the two stroke engine and then close it back up and shut the hood. Uh, there was also no fuel gauge, so there was no way to tell from behind the wheel how much fuel you actually had. So if you wanted to check and see how much fuel you had, you had to stop the car, you had to pop the hood, open up the fuel tank, and use a dipstick to check the fuel level. So not super convenient. The Trabant was famous for being notoriously unreliable and smelly. It would produce a lot of exhaust, like visible exhaust, like you were rolling coal every time you drove a Trabant. And it was also very loud. It was, is the engine was loud and it was a loud experience to ride in one. Uh, it was also really slow. I saw one video in which an owner of one of these said he had only coaxed a Trabant up to a maximum of 55 miles per hour on flat road. Uh, he got a little faster if he was going down uh, a hill, but on flat road, 55 was where it maxed out. Uh, and also that the car, you know, handles pretty poorly. It had no interior signal indicator. And so the turn signal was a bit of a thing, because if you turned the turn signal on and then you made a turn, it would not automatically reset. You had to manually turn off the turn signal, but there was no indicator inside the car that the turn signal was on. So, you know, if you didn't remember to do it yourself, you'd be irritating everyone behind you as they just start yelling, go ahead and turn already. So in other words, it was just a lousy car. But it was also the only game in town if you were in East Germany, pretty much, because, you know, it was a state-owned operation. So to get a Trabant, uh, East German citizens actually had to submit an application, and the wait time could be up to a decade or longer. So it was a really crappy car, and you had to wait 10 years before you had a chance to own one. When the Berlin Wall came down, there were stories of people from former East Germany who came straight over to West Germany and then they abandoned their old Trabant cars while getting, you know, any other car that they could. 
the Trabants are pretty rare these days, especially in the United States, but some collectors do seek them out because I don't know why. Because they're weird. We have a lot more bad cars to talk about, but first let's take a quick break. It's time for us to talk about an American businessman named uh, Malcolm Bricklin, responsible for several cars that pop up on <laughs> worst car lists. And he's had a really long career, mostly focused in the automotive industry, after he made some serious bank in the hardware business. And it's a career marked with some pretty big peaks and big valleys. So it's not like it's just failure. I mean, he's 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 been behind some big success stories, too. So let's talk about one of the flops. Uh, this one is the SV1. Now, before the SV1, Bricklin had co-founded uh, Subaru of America. You know, there was the existing Subaru company, but he created or co-founded the American division of Subaru. And he did this in 1968. And they imported the Subaru 360. Now, this little vehicle looked a lot like a Volkswagen Beetle. And in fact, the Subaru 360 also shows up in a lot of worst car lists. That's not what we're talking about here, though. Anyway, the 360 got some scathing reviews for its performance in various safety tests. It was named one of the most unsafe vehicles that were available. And this was right around that time when the U.S. government was mulling over regulations that would force the automotive industry to adopt new safety measures in car design. So Malcolm Bricklin saw the writing on the wall and decided to go all in on safety. So in 1971, Bricklin created a car company called General Vehicles, which, you know, sounds a little bit like General Motors. Weird. Uh, his idea was to create a two-seater car, kind of similar to a sports car like the Corvette. And this one would have gull-wing doors. You know, so those are the doors that, you know, they, they open upward, uh, similar to another car that's going to show up in this episode. That's a spoiler. I mean, I'm sure everyone here knows what car I'm talking about. And uh, this SV1 would also have a steel frame chassis, complete with a, a rollover protective structure, so it would protect passengers should the car be flipped over onto its you know back. And it had, uh, or top, I guess, it had front and rear bumpers that were pretty chunky. They extended out a good ways from the car, but they would also protect the car to a point where the you know Bricklin said uh, his company said really that any collision up to 10 miles per hour would have no damage to the bumpers. The, the car would resist that damage because of this design. The SV1 would have an enclosed fuel tank and reinforced side panels for the doors. It would have no ashtray and no cigarette lighter. Uh, Bricklin himself was a former smoker, and he thought that smoking in cars was dangerous. I happen to agree with him. And uh, so he said, yeah, we're just not going to have it. Now, granted, people would could eventually buy an SV1 and potentially have an aftermarket thing put in, but that's beside the point. Uh, the body was made from an acrylic resin bonded to fiberglass. Uh, that ended up being a really huge hassle. Early versions of the car had problems with the acrylic blistering and required a total overhaul of the process. It was supposed to be a super safe sports car, and the SV, in fact, stood for safety vehicle. See, I told you you went all in. Bricklin was anticipating many of the changes that the U.S. government would ultimately impose on the automotive industry. He was ahead of the game. So the SV-1 was truly a car that was ahead of its time. 
Now, while General Vehicles had its headquarters in America, the cars themselves would be manufactured in St. John in New Brunswick, Canada. So Brickland was looking around to find a place to, you know, manufacture these vehicles, and he was looking for places that would have uh, government assistance and incentives in order to get things going. Uh, the idea being that the company would provide, you know, uh, more than 100 well-paying jobs in a region in Canada that was struggling with unemployment problems. It appears as though the Canadian government was under the impression that the money was going to go straight to production. Like, in other words, everything else was ready to go. We just need to start making these cars. But in fact, the SV-1's design was not yet complete. So a lot of the initial money actually went into engineering and development uh, to work out kinks in the design. So like they knew what they wanted the car to be like, but they had to find a way to make it be that way, right? You have to test all those ideas in reality and make sure they actually work. Now, that would mean that Bricklin would actually have to seek additional funding as the project went on because he was still working out the bugs in the in the design and couldn't go right into production. The car would end up being a pretty hefty one. Uh, the doors alone weighed around 90 pounds each. Now, they had a hydraulic system attached to them, at least the initial ones did. Uh, that did mean, however, that if the hydraulic system failed, you would have to lift those cars manually. Uh, and the doors were were slow as well, even when they were working. So if the weather was bad, it meant you'd be left standing out or then sitting in the rain or snow or whatever for several seconds because the car door takes a while to open and close. It also meant that the V8 engine that powered the vehicle really had to push hard to meet the demand of moving such a you know heavy car. Uh, and Bricklin had problems in that he was buying his engines from the American Motor Company. And there was a dispute between General Vehicles and American Motor Company. And eventually it saw his initial order drastically reduced. Now, what caused that division is a matter of debate. If you were to ask Bricklin, he said that he was told AMC didn't want to hurt their own car sales by supplying engines to a competitor, essentially saying your car is so good that if we give you engines, people will buy your car. They won't buy our car. However, if you ask other people, you might hear that Bricklin was talking some smack about AMC and that that soured the deal. At any rate, he would get around 700 AMC engines, and it was the 360 V8, to be precise. He would have to get other engines for future SV1 cars. The problems that Bricklin encountered meant that the cost of production kept going up. Uh, and that in turn meant that the company was going to have to hike up the suggested price for the SV1 in order to compensate for the fact that it was costing so much to produce. Initially, the price was supposed to be $4,000 for an SV1. Uh, the 1975 version that eventually came out more than doubled that to $9,985. And okay, that sounds like nothing for a car these days. But then we have to remember we're talking about the mid-1970s here. So if we adjust for inflation, that $9,985 is closer to $51,000 today. It was way more expensive than comparable cars at the time, and no amount of safety features were likely to win people over to it. So why did it end up getting so expensive? Well, not only was there the quality issues that they had to solve, uh, the Canadian policy for workers meant that, you know, Bricklin was hurt as well. See, Canada had this policy that if you worked at a job for at least 10 weeks, you could then 
quit that job and you would be eligible for unemployment benefits. So there were a lot of workers who just decided to leave their job rather than continue to work for general vehicles. And it meant that the company had to deal with a lot of turnover and they had to do a lot of recruiting and a lot of training. So that drove the price up a lot. The company needed more loans from the government to stay afloat, but by then the Canadian government kind of wanted to get a little distance. Uh, it was politically disadvantageous to be connected to general vehicles. The The car was being seen as a, as a money pit. And the government had already invested millions of dollars in the SV1, so they called it quits. And so after producing just around 3,000 vehicles, the company, General Vehicles, closed up shop and the SV1 was no more. So I think a lot of folks include this on the worst cars of all time lists, not because the vehicle itself had enormous flaws. I mean, it did have some, but it wasn't a lemon, but rather it was because that whole process ultimately led to a car company going out of business. But I mentioned just now you know, I alluded to the fact that gullwing doors were going to play another part in, in, a, in another vehicle. We'll jump right to that one. And this is a famous one. It's one that a lot of people know about. We're talking about the DeLorean DMC-12. This is, of course, the car made famous by the Back to the Future movies. Uh, I remember seeing the first Back to the Future film in the theater in 1985 and thinking, that car looks super cool. But I had never heard of a DeLorean before. I grew up in rural Georgia. No one had a DeLorean here. And uh, I've actually done a full episode about DeLoreans in the past. So I'm going to give you the Cliff's Notes version of the DeLorean story. Uh, the whole story, by the way, is absolutely fascinating. We just don't have time to dive into the whole thing here. So John DeLorean, who is one of the more colorful characters who had been involved in the automotive history. Uh, he was an executive with General Motors, but then he left that company and founded the DeLorean Motor Company in the mid-1970s. So Bricklin's SV1, which remember that one came out in the 70s, had gullwing doors. And uh, there was another similarity between the SV1 and then the DeLorean DMC-12. And that's the fact that John DeLorean also shopped around to find a place where he could, you know, establish a manufacturing facility. And he was looking for a government that would provide incentives to allow him to do that. So like tax breaks and government assistance and that kind of thing. So for the SV1, that ended up being Canada. For the DeLorean, it ended up being Northern Ireland on the outskirts of Belfast. The DMC-12 was to be a pretty odd car, and not just because of the gullwing doors. The body panels were made of brushed stainless steel, and they rolled out of the factory unpainted. So the classic DeLorean has that stainless steel look to it. Now, some people would later go and get a paint job for their vehicles, but standard was unpainted stainless steel. Curiously, DeLorean picked a very weedy engine for the DMC-12. It was a V6 that was capable of just 130 horsepower. For a car that was styled like a sports car, and a chonky sports car at that, that wasn't very much power. And in fact, during test drives, uh, drivers found that the car's acceleration left a lot to be desired. It could take up to 10 seconds to reach 60 miles per hour. That is not fast for a sports car. Uh, and its top speed was around 109 miles per hour. The car is definitely striking to look at. I mean, it is... It is a cool-looking car, and it might have been a modest success 
uh, and it may have even allowed the company to continue making more vehicles besides the DMC-12, except that the path from establishing the company to actually producing the first vehicles was a really rough one for DeLorean. A lot of the employees at the manufacturing facility had little to no experience in manufacturing in general, let alone in the automotive manufacturing industry. There were a lot of errors in production that ended up being very costly. There were supply chain issues, and all of this drove the cost of production up. Sounds very familiar, right? It's just like the SV-1. And this meant that like the SV-1, DeLorean had to jack up the sales price for the DeLorean in order to compensate for that expense. By the time the cars were ready to be sold in 1981, which was a couple of years behind schedule, they came in with the price tag of $25,000. So if we adjust that for inflation, that would make the DMC-12 a $75,500 car or thereabouts. That's how much it would cost you to buy a DMC-12 for a comparable amount of money if they were, you know, hitting the, the road today. Uh, for a car that looks like a sports car but doesn't drive like a sports car, that is an astronomical price. DeLorean didn't produce as many vehicles as the company had projected in the two years that it actually made cars. It fell short of production goals, and it was hard to sell them at that exorbitant price. The DeLorean Motor Company went out of business in 1982, three whole years before Back to the Future would come out. And like I said, I had never even heard of DeLoreans before the movie came out. Also, knowing what I know now, when Doc Brown talks about getting up to 88 miles per hour... I think he was being really generous over how much time it would take to achieve that speed. Anyway, because of the failure of the DMC-12, the DeLorean Motor Company never got a chance to make another model of vehicle. All right, we've got some more bad cars to talk about, but let's take another quick break. Okay, uh, I was talking about Bricklin before the break. You know, he was the one behind the SV-1 and uh, the, you know, also the Subaru North America. And since we were talking about him, let's uh, mention another infamous car that he's associated with. This time, this is not a car that he developed. It's one that his team discovered in an effort to find the, quote, cheapest car in the world, end quote. This was because car prices in America, this would be in the early, mid-1980s, um, were skyrocketing, largely due to inflation. And there were a growing number of Americans who found themselves priced out of buying a car. Bricklin saw an opportunity to cater to those potential customers if he could just find a car that was cheap enough. And that car would be, drumroll please, the Yugo. Now, before I jump into talking about the Yugo, I want to mention that these lists are so darn subjective that I come across disagreements in them when I was researching this episode. Uh, the Edmunds list in, uh, includes the 1987 Yugo as its fourth worst car in a list of 50. Uh, Time.com didn't rank its list, but the 1985 Yugo is on that one. Uh, the website The Drive lists it as number six on its top 10 worst cars of all time. Goliath lists it at number two. Uh, in case you're wondering, they gave the Ford Pinto the number one spot. 
Also, AAA has it on a list of worst cars, as does Motor Biscuit, the website Motor Biscuit. That puts the 1986 Yugo at number 12. However, Riley at autowise.com lists it as a car that's been judged unfairly, so I guess your mileage may vary. Pun intended. So, let's walk through the complicated story of the Yugo. And it starts not in the part of the world where we used to call it, you know, Yugoslavia. Instead, it starts in Italy. So the company Fiat created an economical family car called the Fiat 128, and then they had a variation, the Fiat 127. That would serve as the starting point for the Yugo, which was a little bit shorter in length than the already tiny Fiat was. A car company called Zastava Automobiles secured the rights to produce a version of this vehicle, which the company marketed as the Coral. It's a K-O-R-A-L, or it's how Rick says his son's name in The Walking Dead. Anyway, it was a subcompact hatchback, and it was, in fact, very, very cheap. Bricklin's team reported back, and Malcolm leapt into action, and... The story gets complicated, but ultimately began importing the Coral and changed the model name to Yugo and marketed it as an ultra-budget car in the United States. This was in 1985. And the Yugo was an odd car. One of the standard features advertised for the vehicle was carpeted interiors, which I guess tells you about the luxuries you could expect with a Yugo. And, I mean, it was a budget car. No one was really expecting much. Also... The early models had an engine that put out a measly 55 horsepower. Uh, That was still an improvement over the Eastern European version that topped out at 45 horsepower. That engine could push the tiny Yugo up to about 86 miles per hour as its top speed, and this made the Yugo the car with the lowest top speed sold in the United States at that time. Dealers would sell the car for around $4,000, This was about twice what they paid when they were buying the cars wholesale from Eastern Europe. The car had a reputation for being unreliable, though folks like Otto Wise's Riley say that that was largely an issue with people just failing to maintain their cars properly. Consumer Reports was less kind. They called the Yugo the uh, a barely assembled bag of nuts and bolts which is a big yikes. Honestly, most of what I found cites issues with the manufacturing processes. So it's good to remember, these cars were built in a then-communist country, and the manufacturing facility was not a top-of-the-line plant, to put it kindly. Uh, There were real issues, not just with the quality of the plant itself, but also... There was not a real motivated workforce there. There were stories of, like, people drinking on the job and such. Turns out, if you're drinking a lot, high-precision assembly line work is probably not the best combo there. Anyway, there's a widespread joke that the Yugo had a rear window defroster, not because you needed to clear off ice off the back windshield, but rather, it was there so that you could keep your hands warm while you pushed the car after it would inevitably break down. I know that it's a widespread joke because it showed up in nearly every article that mentioned the Yugo as one of the worst cars of all time. It's a joke that's been used a lot. Now, next up on our list is an entry that really hurts because it was a car that I genuinely thought looked super cool. I really liked this car when it first premiered. And it is the Plymouth Prowler. 
this car showed up on a couple of lists for the worst cars of all time, and I can kind of understand why, but I still think the car looked awesome. All right, so it's the 1990s, and Chrysler was creating some really sexy cars. For example, they had, their Dodge division created the Viper, which was a super sexy sports car that had really good acceleration and speed and abysmal fuel economy, like no fuel economy. Now, that, that thing consumed gas sitting in the garage. It was not meant for <laughs> daily driving. It was meant to, you know, impress people, essentially. The Plymouth division, which historically was meant to produce cars for the low price market, later reemerged to be a brand that was meant to appeal to a youth market. Well, they dipped into a seriously retro design to propose the Prowler. And the Prowler harkened back to hot rods of the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. It had sleek, curved lines, uh, open front wheels. Like, there were little bumperettes that were over the tops of the wheels, but otherwise the wheels were open in the front. It had a raked windshield. Uh, The hood narrowed to a sort of pointed curve in the front. A lot of folks thought the whole thing was really outlandish. I thought it looked gorgeous. Like, reading over some of the critiques blows my mind, because I thought this car looked amazing. However, despite having a hot rod exterior, what was going on under the hood was a different matter. The Prowler's engine was a a 3.5 liter V6 with 214 horsepower. That engine could push the Prowler to an acceleration of 0 to 60 miles an hour at around 7.2 seconds. That's just not super duper impressive. It's not the worst. I mean, there are other cars on this list that have, you know, worse acceleration, but it's not impressive. Top speed maxed out at around 115 miles per hour. Still, you know, not like super crazy for a hot rod. And Plymouth only made automatic transmission versions of the Prowler. So that meant you couldn't have a manual transmission and peel rubber and pretend like you're racing for papers because you only could use an automatic. So the performance of the Prowler couldn't live up to the style of the exterior. Plymouth was using a lot of parts that were originally designed for other Chrysler vehicles. This was a a kind of a cost-saving measure. So, like, the steering rack, the suspension, the engine, and more were all kind of leftovers from other Chrysler models. The Prowler failed to find a place in the automotive market. Uh, Curiously, two of the lists I found both have very similar criticisms, namely that the Prowler was a concept that looked great on a computer screen, but it was just not as impressive in person. Now, I'm not saying that one or both of the people who wrote those lists copied someone. But I will say that whenever the two lists had the same car listed, the wording was not identical, just really similar. I'm not going to name them, but I will say, like, I sense there's some plagiarism going on in this world, which is why I I tried to pull from so many different sources, because I didn't want to get like a list that someone made that was considered to be definitive and everyone else just copied it. Anyway, ultimately the Chrysler slash Plymouth company produced fewer than 12,000 of these cars. Chrysler would rebrand it. It was the Plymouth Prowler for a while, but then it became the Chrysler uh, Prowler. Um, It's still a car that I would love to tool around in. 
particularly if I could find one in the original purple paint job, which I really liked. Uh, some lists also include the PT Cruiser, by the way, is one of the worst cars of all time. In many ways, the PT Cruiser was a kind of spiritual sister car to the Plymouth Prowler. It was also meant to appeal to the youth crowd. Um, I like the look of the PT Cruiser as well, but I also heard that it has a pretty significant blind spot. So it does have its own drawbacks, but it didn't feel like it was enough for me to, you know, include it on this list. We'll do one more for this. I've actually got a few more, so maybe I'll do a part two and talk about a few other cars because there's no shortage of cars that people have listed as being one of the worst of all time. As I said, it's a very subjective question. So we can probably do a, a part two of this. But, um, you know, three of the lists that I looked at included a British car called the Reliant Robin. Now, I'm going to say up front that I imagine a really big reason that these lists included that particular car is that there was a famous segment on the very popular show Top Gear that made the Robin look like it would spend more time flipped over on its side than it would upright on its wheels. Also, it only had three wheels. So it's a three-wheeled car. Uh, the one wheel in the front was used for steering, and the two wheels in the back would drive the vehicle. That's where the powertrain would deliver uh, the power. So the engine was mounted in the front. It was not a rear-mounted uh, engine, so not like the old Volkswagen Beetle. Engine's in the front of the car, but it's the drivetrain provides power to the rear wheels. Uh, I looked at all that was said about the Reliant Robin, and uh, all of those lists said that it had a reliable tendency to tip over if you moved into a, a turn at too high a higher rate of speed. Like, they all repeated this. Um, they also said if you went through a particularly tight curve in the road, you were you were going to potentially tip over. And this is what viewers saw if they watched that episode of Top Gear. The car tipped over multiple times in that segment of that episode. However, later on, the host admitted that his production team had re-engineered the differential on the Reliant Robin so that it would tip over more readily. In other words, they engineered it so that it would perform in a specific way that is to become unbalanced and fall over, you know, for the camera. So while the car appeared to be as steady as a domino on a waterbed during this television segment, that was not necessarily a fair reflection of its performance for the average driver. But why would a UK car company even make a three-wheeled car in the first place? Why would you go that way? Well, the answer to that kind of boils down to taxes. So by making the Robin a three-wheeled vehicle, and by building the body of the car out of fiberglass so that the weight would not be too uh, great, uh, Reliant was able to have the Robin classified as a motorcycle while still marketing it as a car. So motorcycles in the UK were the subject of a different and less expensive tax than cars were. So you didn't have to spend as much tax to buy a motorcycle. And that meant the three-wheeled cars were slightly more affordable than the four-wheeled versions because their price tag didn't climb as, higher, as high due to higher taxes. But when I say affordable, I don't necessarily mean cheap. Uh, they cost around, uh, well, when they came out, around 800 pounds when they first came out. Uh, 
that would be around 8,500 pounds today, which is around, say, 11 grand. They were also more economical when it came to fuel consumption. Uh, I found sites that said you could go up to around 60 to 64 miles per gallon on a Robin. That's really impressive. The engine was very modest. Uh, The original Robins boasted an engine that had an output of just 33 horsepower. Uh, It took nearly 15 seconds to coax a Robin to get up to 60 miles per hour. Not that I'm convinced that would have ever been a good idea in the first place, because even though they weren't as prone to tipping over as was uh, depicted, they still could. Anyway, I feel like the Robin's inclusion on lists is largely due to that top gear piece. Uh, I mean, sure, it was not a speedster. Uh, It had a very small capacity. You couldn't carry very much in it. But it would also serve just fine while puttering around like a small English town as long as, you know, you weren't taking corners like Mario and Dreddy. So I feel like that one has uh, an unearned reputation, or at least only partly earned reputation for being one of the worst cars of all time. All right, we've run out of time ourselves. I do have a couple more cars that I was going to talk about, but I'll save those, and we'll do a part two on this in the near future, and we'll talk about some more cars that, for one reason or another, people have singled out to say this was a really bad one. Uh, It would be great to kind of focus on some that, have had notoriously atrocious fuel economy, for example, particularly cars in the 70s when the oil crisis made that sort of thing even more of a problem. But we'll save that for the next episode. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes, please reach out to me. Best way to do that is on Twitter. The handle for the show is techstuffhsw. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 